This is Dennis Mundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. I want to begin by thanking everybody out there that's helped us stay on the air uh, by your contributions. We're not a nonprofit, but if you go to our website, spiritmatterstalk.com, you can help uh, contribute so we can keep our archives free and available to the public. We have had many great guests, and we have a great guest today, Kikanza is our guest. She is the author of many articles and six books, including Cultural Proficiency and Fish Out of Water. She lives in Los Angeles, where she serves on the Bioethics Committee of the UCLA Medical Center and the boards of several social service organizations. Kikanza, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Can't wait. Couldn't wait. <laughs> Well, in the interest of uh, uh, transparency, I should say that uh, Kikanza and I have been good friends for, what, 15, 20 years now? Yeah. And um, have been meeting regularly in a spiritual group, and uh, I thought it was about time to have her on the show. Uh, Kikanza, we always begin by giving our listeners and now viewers, because we're on a YouTube channel, um, a sense of the spiritual uh, history or journey that our guests have taken. So could you briefly give us uh, uh, your spiritual background, which I know is rich and fascinating, uh, and um, how you came to the work you do? Sure. Probably the most significant thing that happened to me on my spiritual journey was when I was 16 and I got kicked out of Sunday school. I was... Um, taking lots of math, science classes in school. And then my mother's rule was that you go to church or Sunday school if you want to have a social life. And so my brother and I chose Sunday school because it was shorter and we could have more of the day to ourselves. And I was trying to make sense. I was trying to align what I was here learning at school with what I was learning from church and saying, well, what do you mean she was a virgin? Well, what do you mean he rose from the dead? Well, what do you mean? Well, what do you mean? And the Sunday school superintendent said that my questions were disturbing the other students and asked my mother to please keep me home. So my boyfriend's father was a Baha'i and he had given me a book on the Baha'i faith and I loved some of the things that I read about that. So my mother said, well, if they can't answer your questions, then I guess you don't have to go to church or go to Sunday school. And I said, great, I'll become a Baha'i. And she said, no, you won't. <laughs> and so um, I had been studying Taoism. I had given this report on Taoism, was fascinated by the what I had read in the Tao Te Ching, it is the one spiritual book that I have read the most and it has informed me throughout my life. And so I said, well, I don't have to go anywhere nor do I have to announce that I'll be a Taoist. And so I said, I'll be a Taoist. And that began my journey of trans-traditionalism. I didn't know it at the time, but being able to see from several different spiritual paths, principles and concepts that spoke to me and being able to combine them and align them in a way that informed 
my view of the world, my understanding of the world, and left me open to more questions and more answers. And so I have continued on that journey, being able to see what was being offered, take something that spoke to me and keep moving, using it to be who I am. Can I, 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 I wanted to ask. Dennis, can I just follow up with one question? And then at some point, mm-hmm. while you were doing your work as in organizational development and, all, and cultural competency, which we want to come to, at some point you decided to get ordained in a mainstream uh, yeah, church. yeah. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, I, because I had great disdain for Christianity, and I thought that churches were some of the unhealthiest organizations I had come across. They were repressive and oppressive, and I thought I could make a difference, but I couldn't get in because I wasn't credentialed and I didn't know church language. So I and I was mentor. I was being mentored by a man who was minister of a large liberal church. And he said, you know, you ought to go to seminary. I said, well, I was planning on doing something. And he says, but you need to go to a Christian seminary because you feel that you have been rejected by Christianity. You need to understand what it is before you reject it. You need to understand what it's supposed to be. So it was one of the hardest things I did because I'm not a true believer, but I also wanted unimpeachable credentials because of my irreverent self. I wanted to know what the doctrine said. I wanted to know what the Bible said. I wanted to know, I just wanted to know so that I could use it, use the language, use the codes and use what I learned to help people who were in a church environment to make it a better experience for themselves. This is fascinating because for those listening in that that are parents, uh, a lot to be learned there because uh, you had a parent or parents that encouraged you to think for yourself, to not feel forced into anything. And uh, I think that helped whet your appetite for more spirituality. And then you were lucky to have a mentor. That, That was some great advice that if you want to change it, you have to be credentialed, you have to get in and, and follow that. Now, once you did that, once you became an ordained minister, did you function through that particular uh, denomination or did you uh, go independent? What was your next step? Um, in order to be ordained, <clears throat> I had to take a church. By that time in my career, I was well established as a consultant. And one of the reasons I'm a consultant is that I don't have the temperament to go to the same place every day with the same people doing the same thing, using the same two skills. And I'm a good manager, I'm not an excellent manager because I get cranky. But they said, if you wanna be a minister, you have to take a church. So I took a church as as an interim. And so that's where I started, but I left as soon as I could. I left after two years and continued in my consulting practice and just made myself available through my contacts to people from other faith traditions. So right from the beginning, I was invited to work say at the national offices of different Christian faiths 
And then um, because I am so trans-traditional, other basically liberal, progressive, um, to moderate faith organizations. And I think the reason that people like me and like my message is that I acknowledge who they are. I don't come trying to convert you. I come saying, what are your values? So if these are your values, then let's see if we can align them with your behavior. And so I, so I start with they are, and then I give voice. Oftentimes in Christian churches, people will come to me and say, I didn't know you could say that. I didn't know that people believe that. I'm here because all my family is here and I don't know anything else, but I don't buy all that stuff that they preach from the pulpit. And I said, you don't have to. Being here because your family's here, because this is community, is a good enough reason to stay. Well, Reverend Nuri Robbins, um, if I may. <laughs> um, in your consulting work, Mm -hmm. had a, a long and successful career. You, you consult with a variety of different organizations, mm -hmm. uh, not just uh, religious and spiritual mm -hmm. ones. Mm -hmm. When you, in the course of your work, are consulting with, uh, say, a business or an, a, a secular nonprofit mm -hmm. or whatever, how does your spiritual perspective uh, enter into that work? Because it must be uh, implicit rather than explicit, I'm guessing. It is. And there was a time when I didn't even realize it. I was teaching cost-benefit analysis. And on break, a couple of the participants cornered me and said, we want to know that spiritual stuff you were talking about. I didn't know what I had said, but apparently the way I present, people kind of get it. The unifying thread for me are values. The religion gives you answers to questions that otherwise there would not be any answers. And they also give you codes for behavior. And we call those values. I believe this, therefore I act this way. So when I work with a church, when I work with an organization, I said, what's your mission? What are your values? What are your shared values? So if this is what you believe, this is what I'm observing in your work environment here and your work culture, and I see a misalignment. So let's talk about how you can live into your values, or let's talk about the real values that you have. Thank and you. Uh Go ahead, Dennis. I, I'm also curious. You have had exposure by choice to many different religious traditions. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you said, tra trans uh, religious, trans traditional. And um, e each religion has a set usually of spiritual practices, mm -hmm. whether it's prayer or meditation or just going out and doing good deeds and all. W what in your own life have you found to be the most effective, most beneficial, uh, most spiritual uh, practices uh, that you've encountered that you may have incorporated into your own life? Silence. Um, I was introduced to silence, the spirituality of silence with Quakers. I had a girlfriend in high school who would take me to Quaker meetings. And 
to this day, every at least one Sunday a year, and for me, it's usually the first Sunday in the year, I go to Quaker meeting and sit in silence. I love what happens in the silence. The most profound spiritual experience I had, I went on a 40-day retreat with Jesuits, led, guided by Jesuits, mm-hmm. and most of that time was spent in complete silence. Wow. And so I find um, that is when spirit speaks to me, or that is when I can hear spirit. I sew, and when I go to my studio and sit creating and using my hands, and there's nothing else going on, I'm able to do a brain dump and hear what spirit has to say. So it's silence. Yeah, you remind me of... Uh... A quote I've come across many times, and it's it's been attributed to Rumi. It's also been attributed to Father Thomas Keating, and maybe they both said it, but it's that the the, uh, language of God is silence, Mm -hmm. and everything else is a bad translation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love that. I love that. Yes. So when you, uh, one of the things you have uh, become uh, a recognized expert in is what you call a cultural competency. Mm-hmm. Um, w- this is a time, and one of the reasons it was important, I thought, to get you on the show, uh, where we're all dealing with uh, issues around diversity, racism, uh, structural issues around race and, and diversity. Um, Tell us what you mean by cultural competency and and why that is uh, so important. Cultural competence is a point on a continuum uh, that is used to describe behaviors from cultural destruction to cultural proficiency. And so as we move toward cultural competence to cultural proficiency, it's a journey that allows us to approach the world, understanding that culture is dominant everywhere we go. You cannot not have culture. And with culture comes biases. And our job is not to not have biases, but to be aware of what they are so that they don't interfere with the relationships that we're trying to build. It goes back to value. So if you have a value for human beings, if you have a value for creating space where humans can come and engage in a productive and effective way, then cultural competence is a way of doing that so that you learn to manage the dynamics of difference. So you learn what it means to really value diversity. And so you begin to look at your practices and your policies so that you can institutionalize the knowledge that you have about cultural differences. So you don't just look at me and see me as one thing, but understand that I am a collection of identities and intersectionalities and it makes a difference. The difference. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the, uh, I'll, the one, one, one observation I've heard from a, a number of the folks we've interviewed, and that is that uh, that uh, in church services, 
in church gatherings, uh, re regardless of the religion, there has been a lack of diversity. And, and I think that they, they say, you know, this, the most segregated place you can find is a church on a Sunday because it's generally one type of person going to one type of church. And I know there are many uh, folks from different religious traditions that are all trying to deal with that and change that. Uh, what, what advice would you give to them? First, to acknowledge that churches are by definition exclusive. They're designed to attract one kind of person and to recognize that, to recognize that there's diversity beyond what people look like, beyond their skin color or their apparent race or ethnicity, and that those unseen aspects of diversity are really, really important and shape the culture of the church. And to understand that if what they want is racial or ethnic diversity, that ethnic groups are not monolithic. Every black person, uh, is not exactly the same, does not have the same values, does not want the same kind of worship experience. And so you need to take some time to figure out who you are as an individual, as a church, as a collective, and then go find people who fit that profile. It's interesting, if I could just follow up, I, I grew up Catholic and one of the last times I went to a Catholic church a number of years ago, the priest got in front of the group and he said, uh, I'm going to list 20 things. If you don't believe all 20 of these things, you don't belong here. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't go along with about 14 out of 20 and that was it. But that's, mm -hmm. that was their choice, I guess. And, you know, uh, and uh, they, they got the folks they wanted, but I felt that was very unfortunate that uh, it, uh, it was done that way. But at least he was honest about it. Exactly. Yeah. And exactly. most churches will say, Oh, everybody come. We welcome right. everyone. And it's not true. But not what they want. Hmm. Good point. A lot of our uh, listeners and viewers uh, are uh, refugees from uh, <laughs> uh, mainstream yeah. religions, or they're in the class of people who are being called unaffiliated, mm -hmm. or, or they're part of a non-mainstream mm -hmm. organization. Uh, whether it's uh, the yoga community or one of the offshoots of Buddhist or Hindu uh, streams that have come to us, or they're uh, e eclectic. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of the organizations we all come across, even in the unconventional uh, category, are uh, monolithic in many ways or lack diversity. And I know many of them want to be have you know more diversity in their ranks but don't know how how to go about it or what's keeping people of color or people you know from different neighborhoods or whatever from coming to them they'd like to have it what advice would you give i would ask first why why do you want it mm -hmm. And where's the diversity in your life? And what makes you think if you have no diversity in your life that you're gonna get diversity in this church? Go fix your life. Go diversify your life and then invite a friend. Right, right. And, and along those lines, I mean, Christianity, 
the reality is they talk about diversity and all, but uh, even diversity of thought, but uh, I am the way, this is the way. Uh, I, our purpose is to convert everybody to what we are, make disciples of all nations. It, it isn't, and it, I, it's a great point you made because I wasn't thinking it that way. But uh, when you said that, hey, yes, everybody come, but they don't really want everybody. They, they want everybody that's going to filter into them that way. So, and and we, I was curious, you, you mentioned you enjoyed the Quaker meetings because it was about silence. Uh, another reason would be, you, it seems with the, what I know of the Quakers, uh, they're more open to a diversity of thought and belief than many other uh, uh, denominations. Yes, absolutely they are. And um, in a Quaker meeting, I'm not sitting there arguing with whoever is speaking because when they do speak, it's very, very short. Mm -hmm. um, Unitarians are pretty diverse and their churches are, are pretty culturally competent and they are still pretty white. Because mm -hmm. um, part of the church experience is the, the music, the rhythm, the, the feel, and people want something that affirms who they are and how they how they are in the world and so um, I'm was ordained by the Presbyterians who call themselves God's frozen chosen and you know a lot of folks don't want to go to Presbyterian churches because they're boring mm -hmm. and um, and the music is like a mayonnaise sandwich <laughs> So, you know, you got, you got to find, if, if you're going to have your spirit fed, then you want to be fed in a way that is familiar to your spirit. And oftentimes the churches that are ethnically diverse either have um, this variety show kind of uh, liturgy that, so there's something for everyone to be annoyed by or, um, <laughs> It is this gray kind of thing that no one likes, but everybody is proud of the fact that look at all who come. Mm. Uh, Kikanza, on your website, uh, there's a page for uh, uh, labeled diversity, equity, inclusion. And one of the uh, bullet points there is to examine bias, privilege, and entitlement. Mm -hmm. That's uh, that sounds easy, uh, but um, I don't think it is. Or it may sound uh, intimidating and maybe easier than people think. What does it entail, and 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 why is it important? What it entails is taking a look at the lenses that you use to see the world and then interpret what you see, to create an environment where people can point out to you that what you're saying or doing is hurtful or harmful to someone else. It is starting with self, looking inward to see what do I like? What do I not like? What do I know I like and don't like? And what, have, how have I been influenced to like or dislike or fear or be drawn to something that is like me or not like me? And how do I express that? Um, 
I was talking to a prospective client, an attorney, who said to me, well, you know, our offices are on the 54th floor. I said, okay. And we have really nice furniture. You know, it's pretty wealthy um, downtown law firm. I says, okay. And he says, so it wouldn't, it would undermine your credibility if you let people know you hadn't seen anything nice like that. So he looked at me as a black woman and assumed oh. I was poor and had not been exposed to nice things. So that was bias. It, he thought he was being kind mm -hmm. and it was bias that was creating a barrier to him seeing who I am or even knowing what kind of questions to ask me. Mm -hmm. So the work that I do is helping people to unpack stuff like that, mm -hmm. these hidden biases, these unintentional biases mm -hmm. that keep you from doing what you say you want to do, that keep you from living into the values that you say you believe. How did you respond to him? In my head? Yeah. <laughs> both. both. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> I didn't work for them. You should have invited him for dinner. You can host <laughs> elegant dinner parties. Philip, <laughs> if, if I could follow up yeah, with, a, yeah. with a question. Uh, I did want to uh, get to your book, Cultural Proficiency and Fish Out of Water. Mm -hmm. uh, folks, uh, what, what should folks expect to get from that book? There are two of them, Dennis. You, you just said two times. Two, okay. Yeah. Fish Out of Water is a book about creating a culture of belonging. So I think many people have had an experience of feeling like a fish out of water. I don't belong here and I'm not exactly sure why they welcomed me in, but, mm -hmm. you know, like I don't get it. So what we do is help people to figure out organizational codes. So how do if I want to belong? How do I figure out how to belong? I'm mentoring someone who just doesn't fit. Let me tell them how to figure out what to let me help them under let me tell them what to do so that they can fit within this organization. Um, I'm a manager and I really do want to welcome a diverse, diverse clients, diverse colleagues and staff. What do I do to make sure that this environment is going to be safe and welcoming and, and, and supportive of a variety of folks who come to work here? So that's what it does. Now, um, oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. Um, your work is, for the most part, uh, with organizations. Mm -hmm. And we talked about how you, you bring your own spiritual values and orientation into that work, whether it's uh, explicit or not. The advice you give around issues like diversity and inclusion such as what we just said, examine bias, privilege, and entitlement. Uh, others on your, you talk about microaggressions and uh, various other things. Many of our listeners are, do not run organizations and are maybe not even involved in organizations. How are these considerations around issues like inclusivity and uh, adapting to a diverse culture. How does that serve us as individuals in our own spiritual journey? 
it invites us to get to know ourselves better. It invites us to ask questions that might make us uncomfortable and it invites us to grow. I was at a very large church in San Francisco that has a huge ministry to the poor and homeless and, and marginal, and it has great music. And so I went driving my Audi, of which I am probably too proud, and I parked and it was stacked parking. And I said, okay. And they asked for my keys and I said, okay. And I asked for a ticket and they said, well, we don't give tickets. Well, how do I know that it's faith, it's trust? And I said, okay. And I walk across the street and there's a line around the block, people standing in line to get a bag of groceries. And I thought, ah, how wonderful. I'm so proud to be here. I went in the back way, went in through the basement and up the stairs. And there was an AIDS ministry and a domestic violence ministry and a food hunger ministry. And I'm, oh, I am so proud to be here. And I'm even going to write another check to give to them. And I sat down on the church pew and my church ladies clothes smell something funny. What is that? And I turned and looked and one of those people, you know, th that was standing outside in line to get services was sitting next to me, unwashed, definitely not dressed for church. And I was like, damn, queen of diversity has been invited to her growing edge. I want to help those people, but I don't want to go to church with those people. Or sit next to them. Definitely not submitted. <laughs> to so my that, credit, I didn't move. Mm -hmm, I didn't speak mm -hmm. to them, but I didn't move. Mm -hmm. But see, it's recognizing those things within yourself mm -hmm. and then being able to do better next time. Just one conversation at a time, one experience at a time. Right. Well, I, I'm curious, do you consider yourself Christian? And if you do consider yourself Christian, is that limiting? in terms of uh, inclusiveness and in, in regard to faith? No, I don't consider myself Christian. And if you're giving a, a guest sermon at a Presbyterian church on a Sunday, as yes. I know you have. And we'll uh, do next Sunday, yep. Will, will you, and- would They don't you, ask you. Would you answer the question the same way? Nope. <laughs> I would say I have been ordained by the Presbyterian Church. I have studied the Bible in three dead languages, and I know the Christian doctrine. My job here is not to share my faith. My job is to help you connect with and align your behaviors with your faith. Great, great, great answer. And I, I think one of the great problems in religion and what's led to a lot of conflict is you either have to be on team a or tb i'm a christian i'm a i'm a, I'm a hindu uh why is that necessary why does one have to self-identify like that and i think that question is not asked enough or dealt with enough by by, uh, by religions yeah well religions most religions have this chosen people concept right and and we are the chosen ones we have the word we have the answers Mm -hmm. come let us feed right. it to you well we know who the real chosen people are 
<laughs> Here's so those from Brooklyn. <laughs> when you already answered the question I was about to answer, ask you, which is, what about your own unconscious uh, biases and and so forth, and and, and you you brought that up on your own. Um, we don't have much time left, but one question I, that comes to mind is, what is the most common? In your experience with well-meaning people, especially in spiritual communities, what is the revelation that is most surprising to people when they examine themselves and look at their own sense of privilege and and, and Good question? That privilege has nothing to do with money. Ah. Privilege has to do with power and access. That's important. Yeah, because it's very easy to say, you know, I, I don't feel privileged. You know, you're privileged. You have more money than I do, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So what does it have to do with? In um, power and access, mm. and and it's also important that even those people who are in dispossessed groups are in marginalized, historically marginalized, exploited, ex excluded groups, there is some privilege there. Um, I have the privilege of whining because I'm a black woman and you have to listen to me ah. because you're so privileged. <laughs> I, I have one you, final you can't question. silence me. Yeah, I have one yes, final I, well, question. Well, I can, I, I have control of the recording button. <laughs> you do? <laughs> uh, one final question, and that is uh, for me, uh, uh, people listening in, watching now also, um, you know, maybe they feel uh, they would like to participate in some uh, religious ceremony services, hear a talk, but they don't want to join a group. They don't want to be, a, yeah. what would you recommend to them? Where can they go where they'll be welcome, but they don't have to self-identify, they don't have to, you know, go through some ceremony to become part of that group? Um, go visit, go someplace and visit and just say, I'm just visiting or say, I'm, I'm shopping mm -hmm. around. Say, you know, I'm, I'm just getting comfortable with the neighborhood looking to see what's available. So don't identify yourself as a seeker. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a visitor. So I've been going to this church that's eight miles from my house for 15 years. And I always identify as a visitor. No, I'm not seeking membership. No, I'm just dropping in. A lot of those places, if you're a first time visitor, they give you a gift basket. So it's a very... I haven't <laughs> been to any of those places. They usually put out a basket and want you to put money in it. <laughs> they, give you, they give you a red mug so everybody knows you're a visitor and they uh, won't speak. <laughs> uh, we only have a, a minute or so. Do you have any final uh, message for our eclectic audience that is uh, eager to hear uh, you know, your final wise words? Thank you so much for having me. And I would say that it's important not to become self-satisfied. And it's important to remember that we are, as only, we are only as good as we are one conversation at a time. You're only as good as your last encounter with someone who's like you or not like you. So be curious and be humble. Great Sounds advice. Good. Thank you very much.
Thanks, Kikanza. Thanks for being with us. And everybody, you can learn more about Kikanza and her work at Kikanza Nuri Robbins, one, one word, kikanzanurirobbins.com. We'll, we'll have all that posted up. It posted. Thanks for joining us. Take care. And um, I'll see you soon. And I hope uh, our listeners. I look forward to meeting you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye.